Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I am joined today by philosopher and author Peter Bogosian. Peter is the author or co-author of several path-breaking peer-reviewed journal articles, including The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, Human Reactions to Rape Culture and Queer Performativity at Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon, Who Are They to Judge? Overcoming Anthropometry Through Fat Bodybuilding, An Ethnography of Restaurant Masculinity, Themes of Objectification, Sexual Conquest, Male Control, and Masculine Toughness in a Sexually Objectifying Restaurant, and Going in Through the Back Door, Challenging Straight Male Homohysteria, Transhysteria, and Transphobia Through Receptive Penetrative Sex Toy Use. Peter, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here and for you to recognize the corpus of literature to which I've made a substantive contribution. Yeah, no problem. So if people don't know, those are the published articles. Actually, I think the conceptual penis was not actually part of... Not part of Sokol Squared. It was the progenitor to that. It's Again, it's been a, a long time since I even thought about this stuff, but it's 20 papers, seven accepted or actually published, accepted for publication or published. And then we got unmasked before we, we almost definitely would have had five more in the New York, uh, the Wall Street Journal, excuse me, caught us. So this is uh, Peter, as well as James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, five, six years ago now? Yeah, something like that. Well, it's, time flies. We won't linger on this topic for too long because Peter is saying he's, he's talked about this to death. It's, and I encourage anyone, though, to to check out um, a documentary called The Reformers that's coming out on Substack right now. What's the name of the gentleman who's doing that? Mike Nana. It's Mike Nana. a documentary that he was given actually access to all of our homes or right from the beginning when he can correct you if I'm wrong, but I think he thought that we were going to be, be catastrophic failures. Yeah. Epic seems failures like it. at this. Yeah. So the, those titles I just read are the actual titles of papers that they were able to essentially as a hoax actually get peer reviewed and published in academic journals in some, in some right. higher ranked academic journals in, I don't know all what studies, feminist geography in their fields. And, in, in their in fields. Their, can you just give like a, a higher level brief overview of like what you guys were doing and why? The higher level brief overview is we wanted to expose corruption coming out of certain fields and certain bodies of literature. And we wanted to do that by, we had tried virtually every other means possible, conversation, discourse. People had been publishing about this like Charlotte Stern for years, have been talking about it. Nothing happened, no move. We were motivated by Alan Sokol, someone who's since become a friend of mine, who published an original hoax paper in the late 90s in the preeminent postmodern journal, and he exposed it as nonsense where they appropriated mathematical terms. Alan is a professor of mathematics and, and physics. And we were inspired by that, and we wanted to demonstrate that there was literature coming out of certain fields upon which public policies were based and university policies were based, and that that literature was absolutely unequivocally corrupted. And so we did that by publishing, attempting to publish, because not all the papers we got published, and publishing papers with horrific conclusions, morally horrible conclusions, 
or papers that were just lunacy in print, an, an insane asylum in print, or pieces of that that forwarded very particular narratives. And the goal was to expose shoddy scholarship and, and corruption. Yeah, in addition to the outrageous conclusions, like chaining up white children in schools to experience oppression or something like that, it's also yeah. just exposing a, a like a horrifically low level of scholarly standards. It's just kind of like first-person anecdotes dressed up as uh, yeah, to, scholarship to a, sometimes. To a certain extent, I mean, the, the paper on poetry exposed that, but it's actually not a low level of scholarship or rigor. It's the wrong kinds of scholarship and the wrong kinds of rigor. It's actually not rigor. It's just very specific conclusions, moral conclusions are forwarded that promote the dominant orthodoxy. And those papers are far more likely to gain traction in the literature, be cited, etc. And this is a problem that affects all of us. And so you could talk about it to your blue in the face, or you can put some skin in the game and try to prove it. And that's what we did. Super inspiring. I was a fan of the so-called hoax for a long time when I first heard about it. This was far before my time. I had friends who were in departments when I was in college in, say, like the early 2000s, that so much of their reading um, just seemed like nonsense. And and in retrospect, I, right. I know it now to be like a lot of postmodern, you know, they were reading Derrida and Deleuze and Guattari and these kinds of people. And my friend would come to me and be like, look what they're making me read. And he, he was a computer science major. And um, he also had a associated master's in like digital arts. So that's where a lot of this stuff was coming in. I just couldn't believe that it was published work. It just seemed like nonsense. Someone threw up all over a page. Alan Sokol calls it fashionable nonsense. Yes. And then I read um, Noam Chomsky's criticism of it, which is like a lot of the best criticisms I feel like come from the left, from people who have a little bit more, I don't know, cachet with the people who might want to listen to it. Yeah, it's that's more true than you can imagine. And it's also more unfortunate that somebody's political allegiance or perceived political commitments, if they make a pronouncement about something that's insane or deranged or just wrong factually, people assume... This isn't entirely a bad way to think, but it does lend itself to making finding out what's true more difficult. They assume that it's their ideological filter that is causing them to say that the pronouncement in question is wrong, as opposed to just the thing being wrong, and they they can articulate why it's wrong. So when they hear that you're on the right or the, you're on the left or what have you, they just write those that criticism off entirely. But I, I've argued repeatedly that right and left are really no no longer useful terms. The fields and the perspectives you're talking about are mostly just what's commonly called wokeness. I, I still always kind of wish there was a better term. Like <laughs> There are many terms. Helen Pluckrose calls that critical social justice. I usually refer to it as social justice with an uppercase S and J. Wesley Yang calls it the successor ideology. Majit Nawaz is termed regressive leftism. It goes by many names. It, Currently, woke people don't like it when you term their ideology woke. They don't like it, and I think it suffers from the same problem that the term political correctness eventually suffered from. Or, or any, it's just it's it's gotten on the euphemism treadmill. It started off as a self-applied term that was not meant as a pejorative, and I think because of the inherent unattractiveness of so many features of the ideology. And more more than features of the ideology, of the attitudes and behaviors of the adherents. On some level, I, I don't care what people believe, but there's like a there's an intense lack of humility and humorlessness and 
typical features of one who's become an ideologue. In this case, it's interesting that many people who ascribe to the ideology don't either don't see that it's an ideology or their moral lives have been consumed and it's overwritten their, certainly overwritten their epistemological lives, but over, overwritten their rational lives more broadly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love Helen and James's book, Cynical Theories. I think it's a, I think I just read this the other day. I think I tweeted out. It's the third best selling. I could be wrong about this, but from it's either the third or the fifth, it's one of the top five best selling gender studies books of all times of all time. That's nice. Um, yeah, I, I was so excited when it came out. I had heard an interview or two with them and they do that thing that I think responsible people with humility try to do, which is attempt to really understand a perspective on its own terms. Some of the book is obviously critical in the sense of being critical of critical social justice, but a lot of it right. is a faithful description of the beliefs and the intellectual background. Thomas Sowell's coming out with a book that I think might to have a similar kind of perspective, but I don't oh, wonderful. I don't know if it's a working title. I think it's just social justice fallacies or something like that. It's going to be a thick book. There's so, there's so many of them. But, you know, that's the other thing is that fallacies only work on people who accept the idea of a fallacy. So I see so many times people will put on social media things like a gotcha, like there's no evidence for trigger warnings or what have you. It was the, the one that had just went around about six months ago. Yeah. As if they're put, and they put this out as if to say, see, 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 there's no evidence, see, so you should believe. No, they have pieces of what they consider to be evidence that justifies their confidence in a belief. But it's just that they don't accept the idea of evidence in any traditional sense. They couldn't, or they wouldn't believe what they believe. So they have to move to other kinds of, so they have their moral beliefs, and then they have an architecture around those that seats those beliefs at the core. It's like an architectonic structure that seats those beliefs in the epistemologies that they've made up. So they have moral beliefs preceding their epistemologies, and it should always be the other way around. Your epistemology, how you know what you think you know, should always come first. I've never objected to the idea of wanting to be both a scholar and an activist. What I think that they get wrong is not being able to distinguish between those two roles. Like you can do both of those at the same time and still conceptually distinguish the roles that scholarship play and the role that activism plays. And through scholarship and coming to believe something for good reason, you may then develop a good reason to want to go fight for that thing. Yeah, it, it depends how one defines activism. I mean, everybody by definition has to be some kind of activist, right? I mean, you have to be an activist for student learning. Mm -hmm. You have to be an activist for... I don't know, knowledge of the canon. You have to be, I mean, I, it would be- a, Anything you I value, guess, kind of. I guess, yeah, I guess it would depend on how one defines activist or activism. If they mean that it has a social manifestation outside the classroom, I mean, that's different. In other words, like you should, I don't know, take up a, a sign and go protest some culturally relevant phenomenon. I, 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 I don't know. It all depends on how one defines that. But the knowledge, the well-justified knowledge, I feel like should be what's downstream of the causes you're then advocating for, not the other way around. The first order of business would be to figure out how you know it's true. We pretty much have figured that out. But if you have a kind of conviction or a moral certitude in certain propositions that cannot be substantiated by the evidence, 
then you have to create a framework or a structure as a buoy for those moral conclusions. And so you'd have something like standpoint epistemology, or you'd have a, you'd develop, Swinburne does this with religion, you'd develop a way of knowing that funneled all thoughts and questions into the conclusion that you wanted to justify in the first place. So it's an idea having sex. And I hardly ever talk about it in the show, but people tune in occasionally and, and are confused about the title. And, and I got a nice email from a, a gentleman who was a fan of the show, but objected to the title. It's a reference that Matt Ridley, a uh, term that Matt Ridley coined about has nothing to do with sex. TED talk. Yes, he did a great yeah. TED talk called When Ideas Have Sex. And I'm, I'm expanding the idea a little bit, but the idea is that two different ideas can come together and their combination can form unexpected new ideas and illuminate the world in a new way or something like that. Yeah, and carrying, carrying that metaphor further, you also have mutations within those ideas that create new monsters, if you will. <laughs> so instead of the adorable cuddly baby, yeah. you have some deranged conclusion within the suite of propositions of woke ideology. You're involved yeah. in, uh, I, I can never remember, is it University of Austin or Austin University? Correct. University of Austin, correct. Founding U faculty fellow. Okay. University of Austin. This is a university trying to start on a new footing that is not so much infected by these things and, and that has different core ideals. So I guess one question is, what do you think the core ideals and guiding principles of a university should be? And Within that framework, what role could something like wokeness or another ideology that you find abhorrent still play within that kind of university? Because, I mean, I don't imagine you'd say, no, you're out by fiat because you believe this, but you have to play nicely with the other ideas, too. Or how do you respond to that? Well, just a few tweaks. It's a university that is starting. It's well-funded or becoming well-funded as we speak. They have had their first programs called the Forbidden Courses programs. It's kind of a proof of concept in a way. The University of Austin is in Dallas now for the summer, and it's a really a remarkable, truly a genuinely remarkable facility that's modeled after, it's like an art museum, it's modeled after uh, the Roman Senate, and it will be in Austin. So the University of Austin will ultimately be in Austin. They hope to be live in 2024. So... It all depends on what one thinks the purpose of education is. And so the interesting thing about the University of Austin is we get to rethink collectively what a university should be. I mean, everything from the ground up. Should there be grades? Should there be a gym? Should there be a football team? The answer to that is no. Should there be? What, what should there be? Are you guys shooting one for accreditation? Thing, yeah. So that's the other thing you have to think about. So if you're trying to do something new and the accreditation, it's like a big cartel. They require some of those things, whether you want them or not. You better have a giant yeah. library. Yeah, it's a racket. Yeah. The accreditation process is a racket. Hugely. So it's very interesting when you're rethinking this from the ground up. Should there be grades? Should there be SATs? Should there be applications for, you know, essays for entrance if someone can just have ChatGPT write those? Should there, you know, what does that look like? So it's, a fascinating experience to design a university from the ground up. One thing that I, I'm, I think that they're going to do, and again, I'm not, I'm just a founding faculty fellow, so I'm not involved in any of these decisions. But one thing they think they're going to do is they're going to try to separate the administration from the faculty and the students. So the administration will not be on campus. And the idea is to make a 
I, I shouldn't speak out of turn because I'm not responsible for these. I'm just a founding faculty fellow. But let's talk they're, about they're, your ideas or things that, that you think might be interesting, even if it doesn't apply to what they're actually doing right now. As it relates to the University of Austin or in general? In general, how you think about a new university appealing to better principles than the university system is currently as it currently stands. Yeah. So as long as the North Star of the institution is truth, everything will take care of itself. Once the North Star of the university becomes anything else, in this case, now that it's become wokeism, it's a universal solvent that's destroying the institution. Neil Ferguson, who's on the board of directors, has proposed something called an adjudicative council. And that is there the adjudicative council settles disputes. So there's no office of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Traditional academic structures are being rethought. So one of the things that I think that's interesting about this is it's an opportunity to create something absolutely extraordinary. It's an opportunity to learn from hundreds of years of the past of what's worked and what hasn't worked to create something that Daniel Dennett says is of, of abiding significance. Because right now, we're granting, we're granting degrees to people who think that they can do things that they simply cannot do. The degrees are a kind of mass illusion, and it's doing a disservice to everybody. It's doing a disservice to tuition payers. It's doing a disservice to students. It's doing a, a disservice to their employers. When you say that the guiding star should be truth, how does that look in practice? Well, you could imagine having like, obviously, an unattractive version of that is something like an, like an inquisition that's determining what's true. You obviously want to avoid that. Yeah, like a Catholic catechism, a Marxist ideological training. It looks like how it's looked for, for up until very recently, in a sense. It looks like people have civil conversations. They debate each other. They engage each other with facts and evidence. You asked before, what role does somebody who participates in the ideology play or what role should they play? So you have to have intellectual diversity in an institution. You have to have a Marxist, for example, even though I'm not certainly not a Marxist. You have to have a Marxist in the economics department, but not just a Marxist, not a scholar of Marxism, but a true believer. You have to have different sorts of people who, different scholars who are well-versed in ideas such that they can give the best case for those ideas. And if you have enough of those, and if you train your students to how to think clearly and critically, how to ask Socratic questions, how to ask the right questions, how to think about issues in a way that pushes back and in a way that weighs certain evidences, certain Bayesian priors, you know, that's a necessary but not sufficient condition to create something extraordinary. Where does meritocracy fit into this? Is that also like a guiding star of a university? That's a great question. So we, I assume you're making a reference to the paper that we just published on meritocracy that was rejected yes. a bunch of times. Yeah. And then Jerry Coyne uh, was the lead author in the Wall Street Journal piece. Meritocracy, interestingly enough, many of the people, I think 21 authors or 20 authors wrote that, two of whom were Nobel laureates. Many of those people are at the University of Austin. So merit is a concept that's out of vogue and out of fashion right now. Uh, I'm a firm believer in merit. The University of Austin will not recruit students based upon exogenous characteristics like how much you weigh, or we don't have enough morbidly obese people, or we don't have enough people of certain pigmentation or no pigmentation or what have you. It's purely merit-based, which is the way it should be. I know that... Uh, George Mason University, they recently, mm -hmm. like, I think the econ department or some part of the some part of the university released a statement, you know, affirming the ideal of pursuing truth or so something along those lines and put out a statement about free uh, supporting free inquiry and, and the pursuit of truth, which is, you know, controversial today, apparently. And 
I think it was Brian Kaplan who fought for the inclusion also of defending like the idea of academic excellence or, or, you know, scholarly merit as an important concept too in this field. And they snuck that in there as well. But I don't know if they're the same concept, but they seem like both kind of broad ideals. Merit is not only out of vogue, it's under active attack. It's under active attack by people who only have one word in their defense, which is racist. Maybe a few others, bigot, patriarchal, oppressor, misogynist, transphobe, homophobe. It's people who sling around these terms who are quite eager to see the undermining of the meritocratic system. You think that people like that that actually object to merit when it affects them on a day-to-day basis? It seems like... That's an excellent question. I I can't imagine wanting someone where they're going to affect your life prospects in any significant way where you wouldn't think, Yes, I want someone, you know, it's it's a it's problematic to say best person for the job, but anytime it affects you, I think you probably always want that. It's only on big lofty social levels that you talk about being against it, I would think. It's a really good question. I would shift the question just a teeny bit and not talk about them but talk about their kids. So if their kid is going to go into surgery to have some kind of operation that's potentially you know, they they could die from it, life endangering. Do they want a surgeon who's taken the SATs, who's gone through a traditional route, who's gone to a school that they could have failed out, that didn't select people on the basis of their some exogenous characteristic, did they want the person to get a higher score or on the MCAT or, or not take the MCAT at all? Did they want to know that the person who has the position achieved that position through merit or for some other reason? That's the question that I'd want to know. And as Heather McDonald pointed out to me in a recent conversation, one of the reasons that people are against merit is precisely because they do not understand the extent of the disparities between different racial groups. And as a consequence of that, they downplay the idea of merit because they think it's those differences are minute. Even just like on a boring personal level that, that don't have to do with employment. What about just in a relationship or friendship? Do you want a best friend or a spouse that doesn't have merits commonly associated with being a good husband or wife or friend or something? I wouldn't call those merits. I'd call those qualities or characteristics. So I do a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm trying to get my, my black belt. It's a, long, it's a long haul. When someone has a black belt around their waist, you can, in, in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, not in other things, you can be assured that that, that is not a person to be trifled with. It's a merit-based system. It's a merit-based activity. Interestingly, by the way, you notice in those meritocratic systems, this is what my friend uh, Matt Thornton told me years ago, and it turned out to be profoundly true. He just came out with the book, The Gift of Violence. The more meritocratic the system, the less they're involved in rituals. Ossing, us, bowing, these bizarre gesticulations, hand gestures, rituals, titles, master, etc. Is this a broader claim or specifically about like uh, martial arts in general and combat sports? Uh, the way that he told me it was specifically about martial arts and combat sports, but I think it's a, it's a broader claim in general. Many of these departments, to start off with what we discussed initially, many of these departments, they're just making stuff up. I mean, they're just totally in make-believe land. And so as a consequence of that, they need also to make up the slack between the fact that their 
publishing and they have venues for their moral impulses with the fact that those conclusions were not derived by rigorous processes. Those conclusions were not attempted to be falsified by thoughtful, smart people. I mean, these are very, very mediocre people. They're very mediocre minds and they are releasing their moral urges into the world that's masquerading as knowledge and scholarship. And consequently, you know, they all go by doctor and there's all this, this I shouldn't say all, but there's a, a lot of associated ritualistic silliness with this. And you'd expect to see more of that in these kinds of fields that don't have clear definitions of merit compared to, say, in STEM, in math and stuff like that. Oh, they, it's not that the, the definitions aren't clear. It's that they don't, not only do they not value it, but they think they're openly antagonistic and hostile to it. But they have to be antagonistic and hostile to it. Are they antagonistic they be... and hostile to to merit full stop? Or is the claim that what is usually called meritocracy is a cover for obscuring the real merit or the real potential merit that people who have been kept down might achieve or something? Or is it just, no, merit's a myth and illusion? It's, it, it's both. It's You see the criticism of Peterson in his first book, or his first popular book, 12 Rules. It's both if you add the racial component to that. So... The idea is that merit is, in fact, the paper we published, the the word they used was, I think it was hurtful and delegitimized. It's a hurtful, delegitimized concept. But one would have to really adopt that so that they can, can and this is going to seem like I'm being facetious, but I'm not, so that they continue to get away with their silliness. I mean, the fewer standards that you have for something, so, so you look, you you really have to take a long, hard look at this. And this is why it's really important that I don't tell you this, but that people who actually believe you tell you this. The problem is that you're not going to get anybody who, I've said this a million times, but it's true. You're just not going to get anybody who who are going to argue these things, these deranged propositions, because they don't believe in the idea of arguing the deranged propositions in the first place, because they don't believe that they believe that speech is racist or violent or pathological. Interestingly, silence is also violent. So I think it's incumbent upon us to make the best arguments that we can for people who are either incapable or unable to make arguments to substantiate their own beliefs. Years ago, I used to think that people who attacked merit would only attack it in things that they thought were unimportant. Like we need to have diversity hiring in a philosophy department. Okay. So you need to have diversity hiring in the philosophy department. Basically says that you don't think it's important. But then it slowly infected every other sector of society. We need to have diversity hiring with airplane pilots, in medical school, with surgeons. That's terrifying. Terrifying. Hey, everyone. This is Chris Kaufman. Just want to take a quick break to tell you all I appreciate you so much for listening to the show. And it's still a new show, still a growing show. And if you want to help me out, I would greatly appreciate it. Simplest thing you could do is recommend it to a friend and give it a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Their algorithms rank the shows higher, make it more visible, make it more searchable if it has more star ratings, more reviews. So anything like that would be very, very helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate you all. Back to the show. So... You read about this stuff, obviously, but you also do what you call street epistemology. I wonder Correct. if you could say a little bit about what that is, what you do, and then I want to ask you about these topics in relation to what people you talk to actually say in real life about this. 
Yeah, that's a great place. I think it comports well with the name of your podcast and it articulates with a lot of your themes. So Reed and I travel around the world and you met Reed and Reed's the president of Street Epistemology International and we do Spectrum Street Epistemology and you can see this on my channel, Peter Bogosian, B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-A-N and it's on YouTube. And we put seven lines of tape on the sidewalk with the middle line being neutral and we have strongly disagree, disagree, slightly disagree and the same on the other side. And then I'll read a claim, put people on a line and they'll walk to a line. So if I say trans women should be allowed in women's sports, five, four, three, two, one, move, they'll go from the neutral to whatever line they're on, you know, say, say slightly disagree or slightly agree. And then I'll ask targeted Socratic questions of them and the other people to see if we can achieve a mutual understanding of the other position to see if they will physically move. So in other words, that they'll manifest their belief in real time to see if the people involved have a deeper understanding at the end of the conversation. So in a real sense, it's again, <laughs> to go on, along with your podcast, it's ideas having sex. And when you, just going back to what we were just talking about, yeah. have you done many of these with the concept of merit? And do you get a sense that real people who are not like scholars and activists, how popular is this concept? How under attack is it with like the regular people you've talked to? I don't know. I can't answer. I don't remember doing, having done any on merit. We often, we let people choose the subjects about which they you come with like several cards of like potential we do. topics. Yeah, we do. We do. But we also uh, it, it strongly encourage people to a add their own topic. Like what is it that's interest to them that they want to talk about? So those conversations tend to be more interesting because people will be more passionate about those or maybe go to one, one of the extreme lines in which if I just gave them, they, they, they might not. So those are really interesting to, to explore with someone. Again, the idea is with someone in collaboration with someone, the process of reasoning is that, is it calibrated correctly? Is the evidence and reason one has for position justified? Is the line they're on justified by that evidence and reason? Do you always or almost always tend to pick uh, controversial claims? No. Uh, well, I guess it depends what you mean by controversy. One of my favorites is aliens are visiting us currently. Okay. Doesn't have a lot of heat that, behind it. I'm, people disagree, I'm sure. That, that's fun. That, that tends to be fun because nobody has their guard up. No one's defensive. What kind of responses do you get on that? Uh, I, I would say most people fall in the yes category for that one. Oh, really? Yeah. Just most people, I think. Yeah. So, so it's really interesting. This is not difficult to do. Any, anybody can do it. We've seen people at school boards do this. I would like to see this process used as much as possible. If the idea is when you facilitate these conversations and ask these questions, nobody should know what, what I think. Nobody should know what the facilitator thinks. But this is a really easy way to figure out why someone believes something it's a really easy way to figure out if the evidence that they have justifies their belief. It's a really easy way to figure out what it would take to change someone's mind. In the latter case, you just ask, well, what would it take you to move one line to the left or one line to the right? And all you got to do is listen. Is it it's really not complicated harder? at all. Is it getting harder to, to shield the participants from your views as you've become more famous no. over the last several years? No, not at all. Do people, do people you no. do this with often recognize you? Yeah, they do. They do. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that matters so much. I mean, one of the things that I've noticed 
that's extremely interesting and really disconcerting and really, really worrying is, so Reed and I have been to Puerto Rico, zero problem, zero. And I'm, I don't, that's not hyperbole. I'm not like saying, oh, we have no, no, like, like literally we have no problem. We've been to Florida, no problem. We've been to Australia. We did it in Melbourne. We did it in Sydney. We're about to go to London. I can't say if there'll be a problem. I don't know. I hope <laughs> there won't be a problem. But invariably, when we go to U.S. college campuses, I shouldn't say invariably, almost invariably, that I think the exception was Purdue, we have problems. You know, We have people looking to be offended. We have an administration. We're just the University of Eugene, uh, University of Oregon, Eugene, passing out signs about trans people being loved and welcomed when clearly that wasn't even what we we weren't we literally weren't even talking about it. We have people who are truly antagonistic or overtly hostile. You know, I was in Romania and Hungary. I didn't get a single instance of that. Not not zero, literally zero. I mean, I tell people that and they're like, no way. Anybody who would say no way to that is just swimming in the American soup. So sometimes you're going to places where people know you're going to be, and you have what is it, administrators or or other professors like priming students or potential onlookers to view you as hostile or bigoted or something like that. Just get ready for this Correct. controversial Correct. And that, nut that, job. Yeah, that, that's because they have cultivated in their students a kind of active fragility. They've cultivated, they've expunged any ability to think honestly and wrestle with questions. They have taught their students that it's the parody of disruption, or it's if you have a feeling about something, there's no reason to make an argument that these people are all Nazis. And, and I'm telling you, you know, we read, we should make a clip of everybody running around calling us Nazis for asking questions. Asking questions and responding questions and civility in general is just not valued in the academy anymore. But it is interesting when you go out of the country, it's, I mean, we were at the I think we're at the University of Sydney, no problem. We're at UTS in Sydney, no problem. Streets of Melbourne, no problem. In fact, those conversations were fascinating. We were in, at Flanders Station, Flinders Station with the guys who uh, their YouTube channel is Common Ground. We talked about sex and gender. I actually shouldn't say no problem. We had one problem with somebody who lost their mind at us, but I don't know. I think he might have just been mentally unstable. But the cultural differences are really interesting. And the fact that the institution supports the active disruption of these events. So these aren't, they may be student led, but they're certainly facilitated and encouraged by the administration. That's back to what you said before. That's why we need to build new things. That's why we need places like the University of Austin. And the background is the particular students involved are and have been for years, maybe encouraged to um, to to embrace their fragility and vulnerability. And this is one of the great untruths in coddling of the American mind. And I'm blanking on which one it is. Uh, yeah, it, it it's not that they think that they're making people actively fragile. It's that when you don't allow people to even hear the other side of the idea or engage the other side of the idea. That's a natural, fragility is a natural consequence. Being shocked, thinking that, how could someone believe that? It's so, so heinous. And you become well, a boogeyman never, because it's, it's in the dark. Just imagine what he yeah, says behind and, closed doors. Yeah, what we should be teaching people is how to respond, how to justify, how to defend their beliefs. You know, they came after me to weave another emerging theme in the conversation. As a result of the hoax papers that we did, they came after me instead of telling the journal editors to defend why they published these deranged pieces. So they came after me. They came after Academic the whistleblower. misconduct. 
Yeah, they, they, they came after the, the person instead of saying, okay, you published this. This was clearly deranged. Why did you publish it? So that's, the, that's what we should be doing. So, well, I'm, I'm talking too much, so go ahead. No, not at all. Yeah, I read one of the responses about you know what, why they publish, and it seemed like they were trying to turn it around like, well, we try to publish. I'm not saying their perspectives were great, but we try to publish diverse voices and have different kind of perspectives. And so, no, that's completely false. In fact, if we're no, that's utterly nothing about those papers was diverse. Yeah, I mean, you, you published them because you guys were, I, I take it, essentially reverse engineering exactly the message. It's like when you're writing a paper for a biased professor and you try to write exactly what you think the teacher wants to hear to get a better grade. And often it works. And you yeah, guys were just doing that on a higher level. Yeah, that's why I went out of my way to not learn people's names, particularly in an ethics class. You know, I taught large classes because I needed people to know that they could push back on what I was saying without being in fear of their grades. Did you advertise that fact to your students? 100%. I know that, I don't know if you know the philosopher Jason Brennan, he made it kind of a game over the course of a semester to... Um, insist that none of the students the entire semester ever knew what he believed on any of the political philosophy topics he was teaching on? That would be impossible in my case. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, it's just, it, it was. It was impossible. So what I used to do is I used to have outsiders who believe those things come in and speak to the class. So I had Mark Chargent from the Flat Earth Society. I had Phil Vischer from VeggieTales. I had in a lovely, lovely op-ed he wrote after my resignation, Phil Smith, who is a conservative Christian at George Fox University. And I told him, I, look, I said, listen, this is your class. This is an atheism class. You can run this class. Uh, I'm going to sit here. I'm not going to ask any questions. This is about uh, – all I told him was the structure of the class. That's it. 50 minutes on, 10 minutes off because we have a lot of students with disabilities or what have you. People want to go to the bathroom and I didn't want to be disruptive. And then the next 60 minutes uh, for question and answer. And in that, he could present any argument he wanted – uh, I would strongly prefer that it was an argument, the best argument for the existence of God. Now, I'm an atheist. I don't believe any of those arguments. So what's the point of me telling my students that when I could just have somebody come in and tell them that? I had Nick Pope come in who talked to the students about alien abductions. Uh, I had people that was in my science and pseudoscience class. So I think that's really important. John Stuart Mill talks about that is having people... Who, who actually believe things teach those things. Yeah, it's hard to, even if you try to simulate that, and I think, you know, honest and careful thinkers try to do that in their own mind, try to... Can't do it. Won't, won't, won't be as good. Never, it will never be as good. Because you're, you're just, you don't have the incentive right. Even if you have all the knowledge, you need the incentive and, and nothing builds that incentive, like really believing something and wanting other people to believe it. Yeah, it's very specious. I think it's really important to a lot of people, they don't understand the nature of the problem. They don't understand the university system. There's a really interesting clip. I did just something with Billboard Clip. Chris, are you familiar with Billboard Clip, Chris? Yes. Yes. <clears throat> I've so seen I some of your videos with, with him. Yeah. Him and James Klug. And listening to this one woman talk about how she can't speak freely in the classroom and other people would come up to us and those that James will release those videos. It's just heartbreaking. I mean, it's just truly heartbreaking on multiple levels, both because that's not what they're paying for, their parents or whoever's paying for it. That's not the kind of education. It's almost an anti-education. Yeah. When people talk about universities as 
safe spaces, unless you're talking about, yeah, they should literally be safe from violence. No of one's course. no one's going to argue about that, as should, you know, restaurants and homes and streets in general and everywhere should be. But this is not the place Correct. to be safe from potentially upsetting ideas. Just the opposite. I mean, there may be. And, and go ahead. Right. And it's beyond that. It's that. And again, I would encourage you, maybe you could link it in the comments or read or I will send it to you. At the beginning of the video, you can't really hear it very well because it's a trans activist singing and screaming in everybody's face. But the testimony, if you will, to borrow a turn of phrase, it's just heartbreaking to hear this young woman speak about her experiences at Portland State and how unfree it is and how there's no open discourse. And I guess one of the things that makes it worse, I mean, a lot of things make this worse, and a lot of things complicated. I mean, if this were a church or a mosque or, or, or something, you could kind of understand that, right? But it's not. It's a university system. It's a university system that's been being run as if it were a fundamentalist religious establishment. And it's hurting people. It's ruining America's economic competitiveness. And it's doing a gross disservice and injustice. What do you think is the main driving force behind this specifically on universities? Like what what's empowered this to happen? What might be a solution to it? I'm asked that question. I was asked that question again. To, I'm probably asked that question every day. The solution to it is to build new things. There are, immediate, there are other solutions to it too. Sure. Like and people should it. pursue different solutions. Oh, yeah. So that's what I'm doing at the University of Austin. I, I don't think the universities are worth salvaging. And I think anybody who puts even one second of time in it is one second of time too much that could have been devoted to something else. Was it a hard decision if, to resign? Yeah, I mean, it was a brutal decision. Uh, I knew it had to come. I would have done it earlier, but COVID hit, and then that complicated things for a variety of reasons, you know, healthcare, et cetera. But no, it was both very, very difficult and very, very easy at the same time, if that makes sense. No regrets? Oh my God, it was the best thing I ever did in my life. It was I, I finally felt free. I was just so happy afterward. I Every time I would look at my email, my heart would start pounding, thinking that I you know, was under investigation for another fraudulent charge or that I was accused of whatever kind of heinousness. All these investigations, all this money, all these people, all the, I mean, literally, like it is often said that we do not say kind things or charitable things about people who are committing an injustice against us. I think that's true. I'll say something kind about my interrogators, or as Jonathan Rausch says, kindly inquisitors, very saccharine kind of atmosphere they created in a sense. Was they're unbelievably thorough and methodical. They called in literally everybody, students, colleagues, faculty, literally everybody. All these investigations for all these years, they found nothing. They found nothing and they, trust me that these were offices of, with tasks and people who were hell-bent on ruining my life. And so when I quit, it was perhaps the best professional decision I ever made to liberate myself of mid-level apparatchiks, you know, bureaucrats who were ideologically motivated in an institution that had been fully ideologically captured. So yeah, this is great. It's the best, best decision I ever made. And was that what started you doing street epistemology? And maybe before that you were doing like an Impossible Conversations video series. Is this something you were doing while you were a professor or is this something that started afterwards? Oh, I did that in my dissertation from way, way in the early 2000s. And then I wrote it about it in my first book. I coined the term street epistemology. I've published ton of stuff about it. I've written about it. James and I, I did it in the prisons for my dissertation. Uh, James and Lindsay and I co-authored How to Have Impossible Conversations. I've done it obsessively. I, I consciously and deliberately stepped back for that 
from that. And in fact, uh, ignored it, never repudiated it when I did the grievance study stuff, because I didn't want that to influence or affect anything that had to do with street epistemology. I, I made the conscious, deliberate decision to step away from that. And I'm very glad that I did that in retrospect because it was, uh, I, I didn't want to taint street epistemology with the fact that, oh, you know, there's that guy. And I also think it's bad for a movement to have one face. I told that to Richard, uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, you, there shouldn't be like one face of, of atheism or one face of anything. We're just people. It's the, the, the idea should, should, should survive us. But street epistemology is and has been at the fore of my intellectual life for decades. So How to Have Impossible Conversations, book you wrote with, co-wrote with James Lindsay, that came, in, in a way, this has been original research on your part that went into the writing of that book? Not that that was yes. the intention, but like you, you took things, you, you know, practical lessons you've learned into that book. Yeah, so, so it's the culmination of a lifetime of research and work and How to Have Impossible Conversations. It's prison conversations, cult exiting literature, hostage negotiation literature, drug and alcohol counseling literature. It's the skeleton is the Socratic method. And then it fleshes out the skeleton, you know, puts flesh on the skeleton mm -hmm. with specific you know, applied epistemology, et cetera, innovations that are cutting edge. And in chapter six, we really drill those home. Every, every single thing in the book, 36 techniques and interventions, all but one are evidence-based. And the one that's not is something I've been thinking about um, in which I only have anecdotal evidence. There's, I don't even know how many references that book has. For Again, it's the culmination of a lifetime of, of scholarship. The only criticism I recall reading of it, and I, I love that book, is um, people talking about, well, this is written by these two guys with this and that controversial view. And, you know, it's just a training ground for how to be a right-wing ideologue. That's why we stepped away. That's exactly why I stepped away. I stepped away so that it couldn't, nobody could taint street epistemology with the attack on wokeism. But both you and James initially, and maybe to some extent still, you know, identify more with the left or, or as liberals or something. But also, who but someone with controversial views would care to write a book like that. I mean, if you don't have any controversial views, you don't need to have impossible conversations. It seems like a weird criticism. So that's, there's just so much static out there. There's so much noise. It's difficult to weed out the substantive criticism from the nonsense or from the silliness. So you, you just take those criticisms as they come. And if there was a substantive criticism, then, then it should be addressed. But I haven't really heard any <laughs> I mean, I haven't really. In the years uh, since you've written the book, have you learned anything in continuing street epistemology and having these conversations with people? Have you learned anything that would make you want to alter or add anything to the insights you uh, offer in the book? It's a great question. Yeah, I think so. I would put in something that actually Reed was the one who told me. I think this is the main thing that I learned subsequent to that. So one of the things we talk about in How to Have Impossible Conversations is to recenter the conversation on a question. So it just helps ground and focus the conversation. So what I would do now, if I were speaking to somebody who held a, a particular worldview in the context of this conversation, say a woke worldview, and they provided a reason, a woke reason to substantiate a belief that they had or a conclusion that they held, I would recenter the question on the woke reason. 
So for example, if someone said, if we were talking about trans women in sports and they said, you know, it doesn't matter, no, trans women shouldn't be in sports or yes, they should, you know, if they said yes, they should. And I would ask why. And they would say that trans women are women. There is no difference between a trans woman and uh, a NATO woman. Uh, I would reset the conversation to that claim. Okay. So then that would become the claim. There's no difference between a trans woman and a NATO woman. So why do you believe that? And we would drill down on that. But that's really the only difference I would make. And that difference itself is more in alignment with the current cultural derangement which we face. It's also, that's, that's just, that seems very practical. You might ask an initial question in a conversation and quickly realize the initial question, the initial frame was not the most interesting or important thing to talk about. And it was really something one or two steps below that, that yeah. really is a so, point of contention. Yeah. The other thing that that does is it, it helps move the conversation along to make it more fast moving and more interesting. And you see those in the videos that we put out in Australia. It's really interesting to watch the physical manifestation of belief and how children changes their belief and they physically walk to one line or they physically change lines. I had a little girl. I really like this conversation. I, I don't think I don't think Reed liked it as much, but I really liked it. There are also reasons, legal reasons, like you you can't film people under eighteen without their parents' permission. It's just too much of a pain to do. But we were at the Texas was it Texas? We were at the Austin. Yeah, we were in Texas uh, capital at Austin, and a little girl came up and she said, oh "God, I cannot remember Mariah Carey, Adele, or I don't." And she said, "You know, this singer, I, it might have been Taylor Swift. I don't know. Taylor Swift is the greatest singer who ever lived." And so we did that claim, and she was about ten, and she stood on the the line, strongly agree. And then after only a few questions, she moved to the agree line. And I thought that was that was remarkable. That was incredibly hopeful that the tools of reason are accessible to everybody independent of age. You just have to be honest with yourself. And a few targeted questions and she really, you know, you could see her like she's thinking, she's thinking, she's thinking. So the series of questions I asked were something, I can't remember exactly the, the, exactly what I said, but something like, well, let's say that someone likes this hamburger and they think this, this, you know, McDonald's, what have you, is the best hamburger in the world. Can you imagine a case like that? She said, yeah, that's okay. So for that person to say that that's the best hamburger in the world, what, what would they have had to have done? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, as the very minimum, wouldn't they have to have eaten at Arby's, Burger King, and Wendy's as a minimum? And she thought about it and she said, yeah. And I said, well, to say it's the best hamburger in the world, would, wouldn't you really have to have eaten at the local burger place or another burger? You know, like, wouldn't you have to have traveled or maybe gone to another country and tried burgers over there? Like, wouldn't you have to have really tried all the burgers to say it's the best? And she said, yes. And then I started asking her about her knowledge of other singers and other music. The point is, it's just that it's providing her with a tool by which she can look at the things she believes and calibrate the strength of her belief. It's just, it's just a remarkable tool and it's accessible to anybody. It's free. Anybody can do it. I make zero money off of this. So it's not like I'm promoting or pro I actually am promoting, but I'm not proselytizing. I guess I am proselytizing, but <laughs> I'm not doing, I'm not, I'm not doing so for any financial or I just wanted to make the society a better place where people are more rational. In your experience doing this for a while, I'm sure you've picked up some intuitions, whether it's explicit or there are specific things you look for. But what do you think most makes you confident 
that you're about to have a conversation that's going to be calm and productive versus hostile and unsubstantive. What predictors do you look for? You don't really know. I think that certain topics set the conversation into hard mode right away. Sure. Anything that relates to one's identity. When we were in Florida, had a really interesting experience. This guy was walking around with a sign on saying, I can't remember what the sign was like, repent or Jesus loves you. I can't remember what it was. It was he went he went every single day to this park and we saw him walking around and I said, listen, let's do this. Let's go on the line. And we did this and he, he was just a very, he, he broke my heart. He was just a very soft, sweet, kind man who really loved people and he loved humanity and he, he just wanted everybody to be saved. And one of the things that I do at the end of these conversations, not all of them, but that I've been doing frequently is I, I would ask someone, what line do you think I'd be on? And the reason I ask that is it's, a way for me to keep my delusions in check. It's a way for me to figure out how effective I was because if they know what line I'll be on or if they guess, you know, if they guess correctly, I didn't really do a good job because the facilitator has to be neutral. And I said to this guy with the, the sign on, you know, like love Jesus or repent, I can't remember what the name it was. I said, what line do you think I'd be on? He physically grabbed me by the shoulders and he moved me to the strongly agree line, right? Now, now there's a guy... I was just so struck by his desire to want me to achieve eternal salvation. That was ex that gesture and the sentiment behind that gesture is the exact opposite of wokeism. That he maybe even on some level might disagree with you, but desperately wants what's best for you in, a, in an emotional way. He didn't even know I was an atheist. He just put me on that line because he wanted me to have eternal salvation. He wanted me to live forever with Jesus. I'm an atheist too, and, and there's something attractive about the redemptive possibilities in Christianity that you know I wish I could get behind. But Yeah, and there's something also that's so endearing and so powerful about him literally physically putting me on that line as opposed to calling me a Nazi, screaming, shutting down the conversation, even in the Christian sense, you know, screaming at me, I'm going to go to hell. So he's basically this guy, it, it was just hard to interpret that as anything other than him having love in his heart, even though I completely think that it's, the whole thing is made up. I mean, it was just, it was just very difficult to interpret that in any way but the most charitable. Can I try to do one of these with you? And Anything you want. I'm going to play Peter for a second. I'm going to pick something that I think I have some sense, at least that's of interest to you. There are objective moral truths that are rationally derivable. Did you hear my, my talk with Carl Benjamin? I did. I did. So I'm trying to rephrase okay. something, something like that. It was great. Yeah, yeah. We, we, uh, I got a lot of grief for that conversation, which was so odd to me. Why? You know, we live in... Well, I don't know. We live in a society, I guess people wanted to debate or they wanted to win or what have you. And, and I wrote, you know, the comment is like the, the purpose of the YouTube channel is to have difficult, maybe impossible conversation among people who disagree. The purpose of the YouTube channel is not to like debate and beat people down or try to win. If, if you want that, go to a different channel. I think that's not what I do. And so do I think there are objective moral truths? Yeah, I do. And where would you put yourself on that confidence scale that you normally set up? I strongly I agree. Would, Agree. Put myself on strongly agree, yeah. And why? Well, I think we can figure those out. We can rationally derive those. I don't think it's particularly difficult to do. I just listened to my buddies, Constantine Kissin and uh, Francis Foster's podcast, 
And somebody, they, they interviewed someone who claimed that the grounding for those truths was God. I don't think that one needs to posit a supernatural entity to know. I think the example that he gave was if you would rather give food to a starving person than torture a small child in an atheistic, I'm paraphrasing, but in an atheistic universe, that wouldn't make sense. It's only because there's a God that that action becomes moral and morally intelligible. Again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't think that's true. I don't see a question I frequently ask is if there's two universes, one in which there's a God and one in which there's no God, and you don't know which universe you're in, how would the world look different? What would be different about it? Most people either cannot answer that question or they cannot imagine the hypothesis. The hypothetical depends a lot on the god, um, right? Yeah, so that's that's part of the like Spinoza's god's going to be very different than like a contemporary radical conception of Allah. Yeah, that that that's part of the um, objection to Pascal's wager, which God it presumes a Christian god. So yeah, so I think we can we can figure those out. I don't think it's particularly difficult. So if you imagine objective moral values or moral facts, rationally derivable. Sometimes I picture that or the idea of like a natural moral law as distinguishing itself from a theological moral law on the one hand, or mm. a only man-made moral nihilism kind of view on the other hand. If you were wrong, which of those alternatives would you find more plausible? Does that question make sense? Yeah. So I just want to repeat it back to you to make sure I understand, which is a technique from the book. Yes. Let me know if this is correct. If... I had to choose between the possibility of a morality grounded in God or a nihilistic universe. Which would I choose? Which would you regard as more likely to be true if you knew that your view is not true? Okay. if uh, Not which would I want, but which was more likely to be yes. true? Which is more likely to be true? I think, let's see, in order for me to say that, I'd have to know. So if somebody could demonstrate to me that you can't morally reason to conclusions, but yet people hold those views. I would assume that I hold the, that I held those views for evolutionary reasons and I would assume that the nihilistic view is true. Although I could be persuaded that the god view is true, but I would need there's just simply no evidence for that view whereas there's overwhelming evidence for the moral view. So I'd assume that the nihilistic view was correct and then I had some kind of a systemic flaw in my reasoning that led me to that conclusion. So taking those particular conclusions aside, what kind of evidence do you think would be most likely to persuade you that there are not objective moral truths? That or rationally derivable if that's a if that's a better framing. Yeah, I I do think it's a better a better framing. What kind of evidence? Well, I would need to to know that the thought experiments that I was using to figure those out don't do what I think that they could do. What kind of thought experiments do you usually or most prominently think about? Well, I think the one I used with Carl Benjamin was the Rawlsian thought experiment okay. that he ran with. So I would need to know that that thought experiment did not derive, for example, fairness. And I would also need to know that, I mean, someone could offer another thought experiment, how to take a knife and cut a stick in the woods and make a spear to kill people. And they could offer that as an alternative postulate to a Rawlsian thought experiment. What if you could make it an actual experiment? Like, imagine a future where advanced, highly realistic virtual reality is where a lot of people spend their time. 
And you can run the experiment over and over again of real people collaborating together to formulate some general social rules that their virtual reality is going to abide by for the next hundred years or something. And they're going to be randomly put into it or something like that. And over the course of doing yeah, this would, hundreds of times, you know, uh, that wouldn't do it. No. Okay. That wouldn't, that wouldn't do it because that would just be a consequentialist ethic, right? It wouldn't show. So, you know, I'm not big AI guy, but artificial intelligence generally has solved certain problems in chess and certain problems, particularly in Go, that people thought were impossible to solve. So it could be at some future point that there is an AGI that could spell out why my reasoning to moral truths was an error. And if it did that, well, first of all, it would have to use reason to do that. But let's, let's just forego that for a second. If it did that, my go-to from there wouldn't be, oh my God, there must be God. My go-to would be, wow, I have been duped in a sense by evolution, or I've been led to certain conclusions by propensities, evolutionary propensities that I've had that were somehow advantageous or beneficial for my survival. And I privileged those, to borrow a turn of phrase. So I would, I would go to the nihilism or some kind of evolutionary biological explanation as a framework for understanding my moral impulses. I wouldn't go to God. Do you find that the Rawlsian thought experiment is fundamentally like the most persuasive reason that you believe in a rationally derivable ethic, or is it more illustrative of a deeper rationale? Both. I, I think that it's, I've read numerous, I can't even voluminous criticisms, and I've yet to hear anybody say that that's not how you could derive a fair system. I mean, look, little kids and drug users do that in, intuitively already, right? When you want to divide a bag of Coke, one person cuts it, the other person chooses it. Little kids do that with pizza or ice cream too, right? One person, if there are two or three people, one person scoops out the ice cream and, and assuming that everybody wants the biggest portion, the person who scoops it goes last. Uh, people do that. People used to do that when they looted sacked villages too. Divide mm -hmm. all of your villages loot into two piles, equally divide them, and we'll choose which one we want. Right. So, so it's not particularly difficult to, not only is it not difficult to think about, children use it. But what does that show, do you think? Well, it shows that you can figure out what's fair. It show, does it show that you can figure out what's fair, or does it show that you can figure out what people are reliably going to value or, or hope for in a social situation? Maybe the latter, but if if... If it shows you it's fair, the only other question is, should you do what's fair? Or should you do sure. what I said before, go in the forest with the knife and make spears and kill people who are trying to think about how to create fair societies and just rule by force? Plato talks about that in the Republic. So somebody would have to make an argument to me. And again, I guess maybe this is self-referential. I don't know. It's so I'm open to the possibility that this is a criticism, that there's something, that there's bootstrapping going on there, or that there's it's using reason to show that reason is an effective tool for the job or for the tr thing you're trying to prove in the first place. But if you didn't do that, what would you do? I mean, would you have like kind of simian moaning or something? I mean, what, I mean, what would be, I mean, the alternative really, even if you lived in a nihilistic world, the alternative really wouldn't even make sense. You know, I suppose if you wanted to, if, if we took the ridiculous restriction off of this conversation and we wanted to say, well, okay, so let's think about 
aliens and other planets, is there a univocality of morality? Is our moral systems univocal and that at the end of history, no matter what language one speaks or what biology one has, one will come to certain moral conclusions. You know, it's, it's wrong to, chill, to torture small children for fun, being the famous one. I do think that morality is univocal. I do think that it's embedded in the structure of rationality. And so to think critically and to think morally, the only difference is you're thinking critically about moral issues. I could I could go on, but I'm talking too much. <laughs> that, that's a great response. Yeah. And if you could look at aliens, if you could look at hundreds of thousands or millions of intelligent species interacting together instead of just the one we have access to and, you know, make a real study yeah. of what kind of norms and values uh, and ethics rise up. Are there things right. that are and common to all of them? Let's say there's one that it basically enslaves other species. I, I, I watched a show about this years ago. I loved it. Uh, I'm a big sci-fi fan. And, and, and it, these, these beings basically just went around the universe and their raison d'etre was to eliminate all sentient life. You can think about it as a crime against sentience. In what framework, by what position can you say they're wrong? Because you would have to say that you'd have to truncate the universality of reason, right? You'd have to say that there was some kind of localized, whatever process, it wouldn't be reasoning, some kind of localized reasoning that was situated in one's biology and evolutionary pressures that cause one to reason in a certain way. But again, that's why, where the Rawlsian thought experiment comes in. Look, let, let's say, even if that were true, let's say that, that, that those, let's say that there are two species like that. Now I'm really going to be, go down the rabbit hole with you if you don't mind. Please, please. Okay. So let's say that there are two species like that and they're very powerful, but they have a strong conception of real politic. So they know that if they were at war with each other, the, the costs would be terrible, deadly, horrible for both species. So they join factions and they decide to take over and just exterminate everybody else except for themselves. And then they'll worry about themselves after they've exterminated everyone else. And let's say that, obviously I'm making this up. Let's say that there's a kind of honor or social reward for exterminating the most people or, or the most planets. And they come to one planet that's largely habitable or, or has, a, has a, a, a tremendous population demographic of a kind of being that they're eager to exterminate. Even in that situation, you would, they would use some kind of process of reason to figure out who would exterminate them. And I would argue that you couldn't even develop the tools of extermination because reason has an instrumental faculty that allows you to build weapons, Habermas calls this dark modernism, but extended to the sci-fi analogy, that enables you to develop weapons of mass destruction in the first place. What if it was just vampires? They're biologically constrained to have to, do, have to essentially kill and drink the blood of other intelligent living beings or whatever through no fault of their own. Like these aliens might be, might be uh, biologically impelled in some way that we don't fully understand to enslave other species. Does that affect like the moral judgment? Yeah, well, that, 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 that would be the same question. The question is, how could you say they're wrong? And just as incidentally, if you ever watch these shows about vampires, I love science fiction. Vampires is like an overlapping Venn diagram a yeah, little bit no, of that. Yeah, no, I do so, as well. But even in those cases, under which conditions 
how could you criticize that? I'm going to interrupt myself. It was Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus. Got it. Miley Cyrus. And I can't remember. There was one song that she said was the best song that's ever been Wrecking created. <laughs> Forget about Bach or anybody. I don't <laughs> like Bach anyway, but too morose. So the question is, how do we make judgments? Oh, Flowers. Flowers was the name of the song. Don't know it. I, I don't know. I don't even know who Miley Cyrus is. <laughs> But uh, so now all the Miley Cyrus fans can listen to this thing. I'm get so much hate mail. You know who Miley Cyrus is? You fool! Uh, death to you! Off to the. Gulag. I can see. No, I, I can see what artists my listeners listen to on my Spotify account. Miley oh, Cyrus hasn't come up, so I think you're safe. Okay, good, good. I'm safe. So, so I mean, I think the question of objective morality is really interesting. You know, to wear that to the University of Austin when I was at the University of Austin last year. I the, just truly have the best job, truly like the best job in the world. I get to hang out with like these incredibly smart people and talk about really cool things. And I think, I, I don't think, I know that was the number one topic of disagreement with me at the University of Austin. I'm reading an amazing book called uh, Actual Ethics right now. And it's by a philosopher, James Audison. It's his formulation and defense of just a classical liberal vision of natural ethics and political philosophy. And it's, I'm finding it very, very inspiring. Excellent. Well, okay. There was, there was my attempt. How did I do? Do you have any notes? I, I didn't, I didn't study your methods. Yeah, exactly. You did, you did good. You got to, you know, you put me on a scale. You got to ask me what it would take to change my mind, which is the key question. Um, did I not yeah, do that? You figured, uh, you did, you did. You got to drill down on that okay. to really. So what you just did was one-on-one -on -one street epistemology. This is great. People do it all the time. Not only is there nothing wrong with it. Again, I want to read underscore it's, it's it's great i found that when you get the best most interesting things or when you get a claim doesn't matter really what the claim is and people go to one strongly agree and the other strongly disagree those are by far the most interesting to me to me personally i think they're most interesting to other people as well and then you can really tease out the reasoning because of something we said before because the people are true believers when you got a true believer and someone who truly believes on the other side, to really engage those arguments, if you can help them genuinely understand why the people believe what they believe, it is fascinating. Yeah, I highly recommend people check out these videos. And I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes as well to the video you mentioned with Billboard Chris and, and uh, your I'll, I'll find channels and things like that. Do you want to say anything about new projects, anything upcoming work you're doing right now you want people to know about? Yeah, we have so much, I don't even know where to begin. So we just did a Don't Donate series where we asked people, this should be the easiest ask in the world, <laughs> to stop donating to their alma mater because the alma mater is the source of this madness. And they're wonderful charities. You could either take yourself out to eat a few times instead. You can save, I'm big into saving dogs. Um, so you could save some dogs. as a guy who does some, some great work. I follow him on Twitter. He rescues dogs in Thailand. You give it to my nonprofit, National Progress Alliance. We fight for free speech and against wokeism, or you could literally do nothing and keep it at the bank and accrue interest, but stop donating to uni universities. We did that project. We had the Matt Thornton project. I think I mentioned him, the gift of violence about a, a BLM, Antifa, and wokeness and how it deals with violence in American cities. He's Conor McGregor's coach's coach. He's my, my coach and one of my best friends, and his book is phenomenal. I wrote the afterward to that. I have something I just finished yesterday. It's a quiz. It's currently at 35 items. We'll probably put it out in a couple of weeks. It's a quiz that tests people's knowledge of social justice ideology, and it's broken up into three categories, gender and sexuality, race and other. And people can take that if they think they're knowledgeable and see where they 
fit. We have new series, a street epistemology series coming out. Um, I have conversations that I do regularly. We're going to start reading. I'm going to start doing live streams. We have the Australian videos. I do. I'm extremely, <laughs> extremely busy. We have the Australian videos and the Puerto Rico videos that are coming out. I'll be going to London. I'll be going to New York and then London. And boy, we're going to make the, the circuit over there. So, and we had, we just did the NPR project where we exposed corruption and NPR. We also have two more projects that we're coming out with that the direct, our director of content. That's on your, your, on your podcast, All Things Reconsidered. Oh, very good. Yeah, we have two, two projects, two major projects that we're coming out with. One is the exposing corruption Wikipedia. Wikipedia is an infested woke cesspool. Are you keeping the and name? Because the, the name's a play on an NPR show, right? Correct. We're keeping the name. Okay, now. good name. And and then thanks, I appreciate that. And then we have, as many good ideas do, may, perhaps most that came to me in the shower. I think someone else used it b- before, or had it before. And then we have another one, uh, colleges of education. We're exposing corruption in colleges of education, particularly ideological corruption and how it spreads to teachers and teacher training and teacher education programs. So. We just have so, so much going on. I have a collaborative effort with, you know, who Michael Schellenberger is? Yes, I do. I have a, another collaborative effort with Michael Schellenberger. Our first one was just wildly successful. Yeah, I hope to have him on the show at some point. We have a lot of things that we're, we're working on. We're trying to move the needle for free speech, for open inquiry, for cognitive liberty, and against any and every manifestation of woke ideology. And where can people find you if they want to keep up? You can find me on YouTube. They can find me on Substack. They can find me on Twitter, uh, Instagram, actually pretty much everywhere. I'm most active on YouTube and Twitter at Peter Bogosian, B-O-G-H-O-S-S-I-A-N. Awesome. Well, my guest today has been Peter Bogosian. Peter, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.